Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Neo Kobe Pizza, the only gaming podcast that floats in soup. My name is Mark B, and joining me today is a returning guest from a couple of weeks or months ago, depending upon when it is I actually got this out. Uh, Mr. Alexander Lucard, how are you doing today, sir? Pretty good. Excellent. So, during the off time when we were recording the previous podcast, you and I were bandying about different discussion topics, ideas, things of that nature. And one thing that we had bounced back and forth that kept coming back up, not only during that discussion, but in prior discussions and in discussions after the fact, was the evolution of adventure gaming and how that might make for an interesting discussion topic. Yep. So, the general thesis of this particular podcast is, back in the 80s, or even the 70s, you could say, when adventure gaming was born, it was a very different animal from what it is today. For those who only started getting into gaming in the early to mid-2000s, adventure gaming almost certainly looks like a completely different thing from what it was back when the genre started. And what we kind of want to do here is trace the lineage from where adventure games started, where they diverged into what they have become today, why, and what's going on with that sort of thing. So I guess the first place that you would probably want to start is, again, the late 70s, early 80s, with the dawn of the text parser-based adventure game. Zork. Yeah, yeah, Zork is, is the big one. Though, I mean, there were others, to be certain. Oh, yeah. I, I want to say, from everything that I've seen research-wise, Colossal Cave Adventures is considered to be the legit first game to come out in that particular subgenre, I guess we could say. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I was just saying Zork because it's probably the one most people know when they think of the, the text-based adventure style. Oh, absolutely. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. If you... Like, being first is great and whatnot, but if you are at all a fan of adventure games to a significant degree, you know Zork. It's a franchise that's been around for decades at this point in various capacities. And you can still buy all the games on Goog.com. Absolutely. It's one of those franchises that comes up consistently in popular media. I've seen it referenced in, you know, various discussions on YouTube channels about adventure games. Randy Mulholland from Something Positive has mentioned this in more than a few cases. And, of course, for... Gamers above a specific degree of nerdiness, the phrase, you might be eaten by a Gru, is definitely definitely something that you retain as part of your shared cultural consciousness. Yeah, for our generation, I think there are so many Zork quotes that are out there that are iconic that a lot of people don't even realize are Zork. You know, like, the a lot of people forget this, but, um, you know, the Zelda, it's dangerous to go alone, take this, actually has its roots in the Zork franchise. Yeah, and it's... Zork is, is very influential in a lot of, not just how those types of games did business, but also how following adventure games did business to a certain extent. It's it's very much a great-grandfather of what adventure gaming became during the 90s and the early 2000s. And, and a lot of it is, for example, Zork, I would say, is also the precursor to the role-playing game. Uh, I would say... Games like The Bard's Tale and Wizardry are a spinoff of Zork and that, you know, they were a mostly text-based game, but they started adding in the hit points instead of just, oh, it's dark, here comes the Gru, and, and things like that. I would say Zork is probably, arguably, the most influential game out there without realizing its influence. 
Yeah, it's it's it, there are a lot of standard bearer moments in that game that even if the elements themselves are so far removed and so modified from what they were in that game that it, it, it kind of codified a lot of basic systems that have been utilized across gaming for decades at this point. It's also worth noting in the text-based adventure category that this is probably the only time period gaming-wise where you are going to see a company release a game with a title like Soft Porn Adventure <laughs> and nobody says anything about it. Ah, uh, fucking Allo, Jesus Christ. Well, it, it was the 80s. Like, I don't know if you remember, and I'm skipping ahead probably five or six years, but like Psychotic, which was an adventure game similar to Allo's games, except it was very rapey and murdery. Um, but, but it's in that vein. It kind of is that cross between Zork, Laser Shoot Larry, and the Shadowgate style of adventure game. But uh, back then, you could do a lot more that you just could not do back then for better or for worse. And games like, like you said, Softport and Adventure and Psychotic, just you could sell those without people going, holy crap, why are you making this game? Yeah, and it's, it's a lot of it, I think, has to do with exposure. Again, it's those games maybe sold a couple of thousand copies. Oh, yeah. uh, Allo himself in the Die Hard Gamecast that we had with him mentioned that the early Leisure Suit Larry games in particular ended up only selling X amount of copies, but the strategy guides that they printed ended up doing double that in a lot of cases. <laughs> they made more money off the guides than the games because there was just a limited amount of exposure for them. So it wasn't until, again, Mortal Kombat and Night Trap where people realized, holy shit, look at the things that we're doing in video games, <laughs> and everybody lost their fucking mind. So it, it, at that point, you could release these games and nobody gave a shit because... They were only selling to two, 3,000 people. Yep. From, from the text-based side of things, we started to get into, you know, vector graphics and then eventually full-on, well, for variable definitions of the term full-on, I suppose, visual assets being used in these sorts of games where people started experimenting with EGA, VGA, SVGA color palettes to try and create an actual visual world for these games to exist in and slowly get away from exclusively using a text parser or in some cases even using a text parser at all in favor of being able to interact with the mouse or with a controller so that it wasn't the player's job to guess the exact phrasing that was needed to get through a particular sequence. They could just click on something and do whatever with it. Yeah, um... I would say that my earliest memories besides Zork of when we're going away from the text-based adventures are either the Micropose games. Like, I don't know if you remember the, like, Captain America and Spider-Man adventure games that they made. Or um, Adventureland, which was for the TRS. Um, I had it for the Atari. And the, the Spectrum, I had that for the Spectrum as well. And, of course, you know, Atari's Adventure, which is kind of that, again, that cross between a role-playing game and the point-and-click game, the frickin' bats. Yeah, it's, it's Adventure is definitely a big standard-bearer as far as that goes. I think the game that most people are probably going to be familiar with is probably going to be something more from the 90s, but the early days of these sorts of games are going to be filled up with games that are Kind of seminal experiences in the genre, Leisure Suit Larry, King's Quest, for those who played their games on the NES, Deja Vu, Shadowgate, Maniac Mansion, 
there are a lot of games that are very much standard bearers for the genre and lasted from this point where they were first invented all the way through to basically the first major decline period for the adventure game. If you look at the games that started off, SWAT Quest, uh, Police Quest, excuse me, King's Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, Space Quest, you'll see that those games consistently have releases all through this time period and that the people that are involved in these games, whether it be from the same companies or even just the same individual developers, consistently have a presence during this time period as they refine their craft, as they refine the products that they were making. And a lot of the games that come out at this point set the tone for what adventure games are going to be pretty much for the next two decades. Yeah, it was a very incestuous uh, genre at the time, whereas, uh, you know, people would go like you'd have your fighting games or you'd have your role playing games. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, cross like, for example, you wouldn't see the people on Fantasy Star work on Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest. But, you know, you would see the people that were doing Sierra games also doing LucasArts games. It, it was it was a very close knit industry on that side. It was. And it's to be fair, you could kind of sort of see certain instances where that sort of thing would bounce back and forth in other genres. It's just that it, it wasn't necessarily as easy. PC gaming in general was often a case of a small group of people getting together and working together. Again, going back to the interview that we had on the Die Hard Gamecast, Al Lowe often talks about bringing his games to trade shows and collaborating with other people within the genre where they you know, would try to sell their games on a smaller market and they would all just work together and exchange tips and information to the general betterment of the community before everything became massive incorporated entities and, you know, trade secrets and whatnot were a big part of the whole situation. And you kind of sort of see, like, the semi-incestuous developments in the early days of the fighting game genre, if you want to think about it, because... I don't remember his name off the top of my head, unfortunately, but the gentleman who developed the original Street Fighter ended up leaving Capcom and going to SNK and informing their development process for fighting games. So you had both Capcom and SNK following the same basic templates designed pretty much by the same guy for years at that point. And... We'll come back to that, because I do actually have a corollary I want to make there that I think is interesting, but just keep that in mind for right now. Now, from the, the basic origins of we've figured out how to use the mouse, basically, adventure games kind of blew up as much as they possibly could have in the early 90s, and I don't think it's hard to point a finger at why missed. Yep, that's exactly what I was about to say. Looking back on it now, they're just taking it in a vacuum is a very elementary, very rudimentary experience in a lot of respects that you could probably put together if you had people who were willing to record the lines of dialogue and whatnot in a few weeks. But for the time, that game was fucking revolutionary. Oh my god, yes. I mean, the graphics, the gameplay... uh you know, it, it wasn't just a first-person game, it was a 360-degree first-person game. And that was just that was just crazy at the time. I mean, nowadays it's like, yeah, whatever, but... And, and the graphics were just crazy beyond what was possible. I mean, at, at the same year, because that came out in 1993, 
And the same year, you know, previously people were like, oh, you know, it's an amazing graphics. The, the seventh guest. And, yeah. Yeah. And and Mist just took the, the craze that people had over that graphics and then just like blew it away. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's it's not just that either. It's there's a very distinctly cinematic experience in Mist. Yeah. It it took its cues very directly from how film, how cinema was created, and the developers clearly understood how to do the most with the least. So you have these sequences in the very beginning of the game where you're just interacting with these books that have TV screens in them for some reason, and you're getting very little broken up bits and pieces of the storylines as they're going on. You're collecting these pages, you're bringing them back, you're putting them into the books, and you're slowly getting more and more information. It it managed to tell a very suspenseful story using very little actual dialogue that was interesting and presented itself in a very unique and very engaging fashion that hadn't really been seen in any kind of gaming at that point. Yeah, and, and there were so many things that it did that that not only broke the video game genre, but the adventure genre as well. Because previously, you no know, adventure games, and even up to today, are can be very linear. Whereas Myst, you could just go wherever, more or less, and solving puzzles in whatever order you could figure them out in. It brought up concepts like ethics, which you know most video games were black and white and very tropey up until that point, story wise. And it's just it had different endings which again was something that wasn't that common and it just it broke all the molds for it's weird to say it now but mist basically made the adventure game genre the biggest most popular genre in gaming up to that point and it would probably last for i think about five years the popularity of it kind of like went back and forth but yeah that's roughly about right i would think I mean, and it also helped that right at the same time Mist came out, you know, Seventh Guest, like we mentioned, but also um, LucasArts really took off. I mean, yeah. Maniac Mansion in 87, but then we had Day of the Tentacle, Monkey Island, Sam and Max, and you know, th- those games just became really popular because people were like, I can play a video game and laugh, whereas a lot of games, you know, tended to be dark or serious. And just that three prong of the Seventh Guest, Mist, and pretty much anything that LucasArts put out just really that was probably the golden age for the genre oh definitely and it's at that point adventure games basically became kind of the go-to genre if you wanted to get an experience that had an interesting compelling story to tell but wasn't necessarily as complex and involved as something like the the western rpg or the jrpg at that point so you would go to RPGs if you wanted lengthy, world-spanning stories about saving the world and doing whatever, but adventure games managed to take two- to three-hour-long stories, condense them into you know five- to ten-hour games where you would find objects, solve puzzles, and things of that nature. They were very good for involving a wide variety of people. The puzzle-solving aspects made them appealing to just about anybody, and adventure games became known for cinematic presentation for giving players that that story that storied experience where they could get that really engaging cinematic heavy experience that you wouldn't get from so many other genres and if if you look at like the luminaries from this time period it, it's clear that that holds up again outside of mist and seventh guest you have again the the lucas arts games day of the tentacle full throttle grim fandango 
from Sierra, you started seeing things like Leisure Suit Larry Love for Sale and Phantasmagoria. Gabriel Knight came into form around this time period. Even on the consoles, you had access to great adventure games that pushed this, like Willy Beamish, Rise of the Dragon, Snatcher. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Sega CD was great for it. I mean, Willy Beamish is one of those games that does not get the credit it deserves, and that was just a fantastic adventure game. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like its structures were a little rough, but as an experience, it's, it's, if you know what you're doing, it's, it's really good. Yeah, and th there were a lot of really good console games at the time. Like, um, I know I was talking to you, I think I was talking to you about this earlier, but Shadowrun. The America got, you know, the NES and the Genesis version, but the Sega Genesis had a version that was kind of an RPG adventure uh, visual novel hybrid, which was mm -hmm. really fantastic. And it's too bad it never got localized into English because, you know, got to run. I don't know. That's 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 definitely one of the few things that I, I regret as far as like the different genres go, like, like just things that we've missed in gaming. And it's, it's interesting to see that. You know, at the same time, we're talking about how great we enjoyed Sierra and LucasArts and the Miss Brothers. I think Miller, the Miller Brothers. That was Japan was doing the, its own thing with the adventure game genre, which was pouring over some of our own. Uh, like they would take Shadow of the Comet and Prisoner of Ice, which was toward the late 90s Cthulhu games, leaving them in English. But uh, you could play them on the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation. The, there were a couple adventure game slash visual novels for the fantasy star for the sega game gear which i remember importing in the 90s yeah there was there was decidedly a focus in japan to go with text heavy games which is going to be important later so do remember it but there's there's a a decided shift in how the japanese marketplace responds to adventure games relative to the western marketplace and we see that in a lot of genres, obviously. Wizardry as a franchise is still really big over there. Like, it's still a desirable thing to release to the point where you will see games that don't even have anything to do with Wizardry as a series get Wizardry-style mock-ups and releases uh, on the PlayStation Vita and things of that nature. Uh, Hell, King's Quest has a Wizardry-style subgenre of sorts that was released onto the handhelds um a few years ago for some reason even persona q is very much you can tell it's a wizardry homage oh yeah and it's again etrian odyssey comes from there oh, yeah, it's yeah. it's there's so many different games that work off of that particular roguelike dungeon crawling experience that we on the western side of things kind of left behind a while ago so it's japan clearly adapts different things from different genres and tries to make the genres their own. So it should be no surprise that adventure games follow suit, and Japan kind of starts focusing on making these games very text-heavy, very narrative-heavy, very heavy on telling a story first and foremost, but not in the traditional cinematic style that we've come to expect at this point. Again, Mist is telling a visual story. Mist is presenting a beautiful world where the camera angles and the aesthetics and brief bits of conversation here and there are telling a story. In Japan, they tell, they don't show. It's, you're kind of reading a novel in a lot of respects, hence the term visual novel. And that's kind of where that divide goes for a while. 
even once Japan starts getting into visual-heavy presentation, again, look at Snatcher as an example, there's still a lot of dialogue interplay. There's still a lot of description. And that's fine. It's just different from where the West is going with this sort of thing. Western adventure game developers are hiring actors to act out scenes on camera. So you're seeing, you know, adventure games where people like Dennis Hopper and Stephanie Seymour are Black showing Diamond. up to... Yeah, exactly. You're seeing them show up and record lines of dialogue or actual acting parts. Whereas in Japan, it's it's static imagery text. And that's kind of nice because you get you get to see how different cultures take a different genre similar to RPGs or fighting games. And at the same time, it gives the consumer more options. Like maybe one second you want to play, you know, eventually Siberia or Day of the Tentacle. And or then you want to play a like Princess Maker 2, which is essentially an adventure game in, a, in its own right. Or you want to play a visual novel or a dating sim. And they're all adventure games. And even though the adventure game genre was, you know, hitting its first rough patch in the mid to late 90s because people really moved to consoles instead of PCs, you still had tons of options out there for, for any sort of system. Yeah, for for a bit, it should be it should be noted. And that actually brings us into where we were going to go next, which is the, the first major fall of adventure gaming. Yeah. When you think of the end of the, the first golden era, the beginning of the crash of adventure games, it's Grim Fandango because every video game magazine out there loved Grim Fandango. It won so many Game of the Year awards, but it sold worse than, you know, Beyond Good and Evil. Um, it, just, it, it didn't sell. It, it tanked and it, it tanked so bad that LucasArts stopped doing adventure games. And it, it's like, that game did so badly, you can see right where it was, tons of adventure games, no adventure games for a couple of years. Yeah, and it's, uh, that's definitely one of them. I mean, there, there are a lot of different reasons why the genre crapped out. Going back to the history of rhythm games uh, with Joe Tran from previous weeks, one thing that we mentioned that was consistently a repeated pattern when looking at why things like Dance Dance Revolution and the Guitar Hero Rock Band franchises crapped out was because the caretakers of those genres did not take care of those genres and massively, grossly overpopulated the marketplace with stuff that was never going to sell. Surprise! Adventure games did the exact same fucking thing. Oh, God, yeah. Like, Sierra, Sierra is, as much as they are a standard bearer of games in those genre. They are also very much a standard bearer for abusing the shit out of that fucking marketplace. Definitely. I, I mean, Sierra, in my mind, when I think of Sierra nowadays, I tend not to think of their King's Quest, you know, 2 million and 6. And I try to focus more on the games that they put out that weren't adventure games, just because they didn't kill the genre of those. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, a lot of people saw that initial missed idea of how... You know, you, you can present these games in this very specific way and, you know, plug things in in a certain fashion and make money and you can do whatever with that. And they said, hey, we can do this sort of thing, too. So a lot of games just started aping the Myst model more than anything else. And it didn't help that Myst also saw multiple sequels during this time period. But oh, yeah, I mean, they were they're so easy to make adventure games. I mean, they're much quicker. They have a faster turnaround than 
say, an RPG or a fighting game or even a shoot 'em up And so it's really easy to turn them out and then to churn out too many right in a row. Yeah, and I mean, we're also coming into a point here where somebody decided to make a goddamn parody of Myst, for Christ's sake, which was unheard of at that point. And to be fair, the, the parody, which I believe was called Pissed, was pretty goddamn terrible on top of it all. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery, but at the same time, they the the Miller brothers kind of deserve it. The Mist games are good. I own every single one. Heck, I even own Abduction, which just came out this year, and, but it's too many too soon. And mm-hmm. it, it's similar to, like, King's Quest. If you take a look between the first one and the sixth one from Sierra, and I'm trying not to be mean to Sierra here, but that was six games in nine years. This is not a sports franchise here. And not only that, that's just in King's Quest. Yeah. How many Leisure Suit Larry games were there? Yeah, and, and, and there were the Space Quests, and I think there were five of those in the same amount of time period. And, and then Police Quest. Yeah, p- Police Quest. And then you had other franchises, like we, we talked about. We had the Seventh Guest and the Eleventh Hour, and then the third game of that series, which doesn't need to be mentioned because it only sold like... 36 copies um (laughs) and everything was just churning them out like shadowgate was popular and even though unforgiven and deja vu were great bam bam they came out right after each other and then there were remastered versions of those games which was unheard of for the time period and there were so many that it just it super saturated the market and something had to give kind of like the d20 era for role-playing games everyone was making a d20 version of their game and you only had so many gamers and so many dollars at that point yeah and it's to be fair generally speaking if you see a genre like cave in upon itself there's usually that period where if nobody is doing exactly what that genre is doing you will see those genres kind of hang on by a thread and eventually dig themselves out of the hole like the side-scrolling shooter has consistently kicked around for a while and even though it, it started to die off during i want to say it was the fifth console generation they still hung around and it it still was a genre people paid money for just in smaller degrees because there weren't really other genres doing what it was doing the problem is is that adventure games couldn't even lay claim to that the first thing to really keep in mind is that adventure developers on top of oversaturating the market fell into the same constant bad habits, which is, putting it the simplest way I possibly can, the fucking developers expected you to read their mind and come up with the right answer to advance in the game. Oh, yeah. You'd get some really esoteric puzzles that just... And this is before, of course, you know, the internet was prolific and you could look up the answers or watch a walkthrough. It was a, what the hell do I do now? Yeah, uh, there's this one famous example of a puzzle that was just crammed into a game. I want to say it was one of the Broken Sword games, but I don't remember for certain, where you would have to get a fake mustache in order to make progress. And instead of doing this in any kind of logical way, you had to set up like a piece of invisible tape, like masking tape, and like scare a cat to run past it to collect its fur so that you could make this must. It was the stupidest thing. And developers were constantly doing dumb shit like this. Oh, yeah. There are so many weird adventure game things. And that's Gabriel Knight 3 that you're thinking about. Okay, Gabriel Knight. There we go. Yeah. But, um, I mean, just Mystery of the Druids had 
puzzles like that that make you not want to play it. Hopkins FBI. I mean, there, there's so many. I'm sure there's like articles about there. I don't know if you remember Ripper, which had Christopher Walken and Burgess Meredith and Paul Giamatti. I mean, it's one of those games like Black Dahlia where you had the huge, huge cast and big names, but the puzzles were just so terrible. And besides games that were just doing terrible puzzles that you really had to be the creator of it to understand, you'd also see companies doing the same exact puzzles in like 20 different games. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I would be remiss here if I didn't mention the Darkseed series, because Jesus Christ, the mechanics <laughs> of those fucking games. I love H.R. Geiger, you know, whatever entity you believe in, rest his soul. But holy shit, those were bad fucking games. See, I... I actually own Darkseed for the Sega Saturn, and it, it's one of those dirty little games that I enjoy playing for the visuals. But even now, even though I've probably played it five or six times, there's there are puzzles where I'm like, uh, I'm probably going to want to go get a walkthrough for that. Yeah, no, I uh, definitely it's it's there were ones that had like really specific fucked up timing requirements or if you missed like one item, you were you just you were fucked. The game was over. Yeah, like, like Alone in the Dark, one of the very first puzzles in that game, if not the very first, is a timed one. And you're sitting there going, all right, what can I click on? What can I do? Oh, crap! Monster comes through the window and kills me! Yeah. Been playing for about 60 seconds. Yeah. And, I mean, there's, there's something to be said for that level of difficulty. It's enjoyable, and when you beat those games, you really feel like you've accomplished something. But at the same time, you know, if you're nine years old and this is your first adventure game... What's going to make you want to play another one after you get something like that? It's also worth noting at this point that starting at around the fifth console generation, games started becoming more cinematic on the overall. So something that adventure games had laid claim to for years at this point, which was the cinematic presentation, the rich storytelling experience, was to variable degrees of the possibility of such things being co-opted by other games. I mean, like it or not, Final Fantasy VII was influential in the world of JRPGs, and it, it drove millions of people into that franchise. But those were eyes that were originally fixated on the adventure genre who were saying, holy crap, other games can do this too. Yeah, and I mean, you were really starting to see things like Lunar, which was giving you full cinematics, and the RPG genre, I think, really took away a lot of the adventure game audience that was playing primarily for story. That, that weren't playing because they really wanted to have, you know, do a circle down left fireball or complicated gameplay or real-time strategies. A lot of adventure game fans were people that wanted a really good story and something pretty to look at while they while they progress through the story. And adventure and RPGs were like, hey, we can give you that for 40 hours. Sure, a lot of it's grinding, but look at the pretty graphics and the fact you can customize your character. Yeah, and it's they were they were taking away that mechanical shittiness that came with adventure games where you might spend an hour or two hours rubbing two items in your inventory together over and over again or rubbing inventory items on parts of the game world over and over again in order to try and resolve whatever stupid puzzle the developer came up with at the moment that made no logical sense. Oh yeah, it was definitely the trial and error aspect of adventure games, I think, is what eventually is one of the big things that caused the downfall in the late 90s. Just because people didn't want to have to spend all that time hoping that they were going to get something to progress, or maybe the, the pixelation on the thing you could click on was messed up, and so it was really small for that one particular area. To, and it's just, there were a lot of problems with the adventure game genre that, you know, 
sure, it worked for a long time, but there was no attempt at improving it. People were really coasting on the same mechanics at that time period. Yeah, and it's also really worth noting that outside of whatever happened with, you know, developments in storytelling, uh, JRPGs, things of that nature, that specifically within the confines of PC-style adventure gaming relative to what players wanted, first-person shooters kind of murdered a sizable portion of that genre outright, and Resident Evil kind of murdered everything else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that a lot of Resident Evil, especially that very first one, has its roots more in the adventure game genre than the horror genre, because there are. You're putting items together, even if it's, you know, greener red herb and solving solving various puzzles that, that are so like taken directly from a couple different adventure games but you're also getting the action motion of you know being able to kill things so it's, it's like that alone in the dark tank controls plus puzzles that you're used to but better graphics and some cinematics yeah i mean the story is absolute garbage and yeah. you know it, it has not aged particularly well <laughs> you almost became a chill sandwich but it's still different it's still something that filled that void that filled that need that adventure game players wanted filled in where all of a sudden i have this ability to play this game that has this cinematic experience and this definitive narrative structure and these puzzles to solve but i can also shoot zombies fucking a sign me up and doom and half-life really kind of murdered off a lot of what people found appealing insofar as world exploration in adventure games went because you know, even if you didn't necessarily have the most robust narrative in those games, you did have something, and you got to explore worlds and solve very basic puzzles, but with a much more direct focus on exciting Twitch gameplay. And all of a sudden, you have this genre where all of the things that make it unique are no longer unique to that genre, and all you're left with is stories of variable quality, a bunch of full-motion video cutscenes that were on their way out on the coolness scale, and puzzles nobody liked. Yeah, I, I mean, the the fact is that at that time, every some other genre could do some aspect of the adventure game better. Not Not necessarily all of them, but if you were going for graphics, you had Final Fantasy VII, or you had things like that. If you were going for storytelling, you had Persona or Persona 2. And every aspect that people liked about adventure games, aside the point-and-click simplicity gameplay, something else was doing, and was doing it a lot better. And so if you if you're really into one specific aspect, you had all these other games that you could look at now. And so the audience that wanted everything in one package was really diluted. It became a sliver. So I feel like the early 2000s is basically the the official death of the adventure game as a significant genre in PC gaming as we understood it. Yeah. Now, to be clear, there are still games coming out that are like that, but you can you can tie that death back to two key events, which the first one being as you had mentioned, the dissolution of LucasArts as a adventure game company. And the second being the sale of Sierra to CUC International and then later to Vivendi. Yeah, but and that, that's part of the genre. Um, the, these were companies that were in it more for a profit than, you know, some of the other indie developers that were in it just to make video games for the sake of making video games. And it, that's how the industry went. And 
there's not nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, yeah, Roberta and Ken Williams were like, oh, we love our freaking Phantasmagoria. But once they sold it, you know, they're like, are we really going to make sell another million copies of, say, Fan- Phantasmagoria? Probably not. Let's move on to, say, Crash Bandicoot. Yeah, and at this point, adventure games go underground. I mean, you, you'd have an occasional hit at this point, like a really super hit, like the Dracula games that the adventure company brought over or Siberia, which was super popular. But but I mean, it was it was a rarity. It wasn't like a oh, my God, Mist level or or Sierra level. It was a hey, this is a pretty good adventure game for once. The independent scene kind of still exists at this point because we're, we're at the point where the Internet allows for some degree of sharing amongst enthusiasts. This particular period is notable for a fairly active underground scene, one of the major players in which being current game critic uh, Ben Yahtzee Croshaw with his Chizo mythos, where, you know, love the games or don't, and to be clear, I mostly don't, they're certainly very influential insofar as it relates to inspiring some developers and keeping the genre alive behind the scenes until more recently where services like, you know, GOG and Steam have allowed developers that ability to start putting games out on their own terms and kind of sort of make a token effort to bring the genre back. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, Europe, while while it was really dead over here from probably, I want to say 2000 to 2007 for, for the genre, Europe was doing a lot. And then a lot of casual game companies were deciding to kind of modify the adventure game genre into something that they could put out cheap. For example, hidden object games. I, I think about the same point when the adventure game genre hit its low, that's when you really started to see the beginning of the hidden object game as its own subgenre. Yeah, no, I can definitely agree with that. Like they, they'd always hidden objects puzzles in general had always been a thing. Like, Back in the 80s, you included that shit in your Highlights magazine, obviously. But (laughs) making them into an entire genre of video games was definitely something that started to really take off at this point. And, you know, we're we're at the point now where their their entire company is devoted to just selling those kinds of games and nothing else. But, like, around this point is where you start to see that become a viable market strategy. Yeah, and, I mean, because it's it's diversify or die at this point. Yes. And what's interesting is now in 2016, we're at the point where we're starting to see kind of a return to form for the classic adventure game. Uh, King's Quest has seen uh, a revamped remake slash sequel slash whatever. Leisure Suit Larry saw a full remake of the very first game, which itself was also a remake of the very first game. Long story. And we've seen things like Dropsy and City Quest come out that carry on that sort of specific genre handling while being completely different brand new IPs. Yeah. And Tim Schafer's gotten some of the IPs from LucasArts back. You know, he did the uh, high def remakes of Day of the Tentacle and Grim Fandango, and mm-hmm. they sold better than they did back in their original days. And a whole new generation is gonna, getting to see why they were very cult and popular. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's at this point, the conventional adventure game, as we understand it, has started to become something that is in the conversation again, that it probably will never become what it was back during the 90s, but is definitely something that deserves to exist and deserves to be part of the discussion 
when it comes to popularity and exposure on a wide scale. What actually happened is that adventure games didn't necessarily die off and just come back, though. Rather, they, they kind of went into two conceptually different but not all that dissimilar evolutionary paths that, surprisingly enough, actually divide cleanly between the Eastern and the Western marketplaces. So, let's go back a little bit to what we were talking about previously with the idea of text-heavy adventure games becoming a thing in Japan and related marketplaces. This eventually evolves into what is commonly known as the the evolutionary path from the adventure game that's dubbed the visual novels. Visual novels essentially come from what is most commonly and somewhat derogatorily known as the dating simulator, uh, which is a popular adventure game subgenre in the 90s. If if you were into certain kinds of smaller market subgenre games, just porn. It, it, it's just fucking porn, all right? <laughs> Most dating simulators in the 90s were just fucking porn, all right? I'm just gonna, I'm not even gonna be nice about it. it. There was fucking, okay? Anyway, dating simulators were a thing at that point, and if you were playing adventure games and you were playing, you know, adventure games that were more adult in nature, you were playing shitload of dating simulators. And the, the concept was fairly basic. You would follow along a linear narrative path talk to XYZ girl, interact in a specific way, and attempt to answer questions or resolve scenarios in a way that the end result ended up with, you know, insert tab A into slot B. Yeah, it was very similar to, um, you know, the the object puzzles or the dialogue puzzles of the Western adventure game. It's just you would end up having more of a Leisure Suit Larry experience with more graphic detail. Exactly. and. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that while the Western marketplace generally only got the pornographic slash hentai versions of these things for the most part, Japan got a shitload of relatively normal, non-hentai-based dating simulators and visual novels, as that became a fairly significant and popular genre over there, to the point where you will see games nowadays come out on the PC that are quite clearly hentai games that do really well sales-wise, and they will get cleaned up PC, or I'm sorry, cleaned up PS2 or PS3 or PS4 ports, depending upon what we're talking about at the moment, and those games will explode. And we're starting to see those games get ported over here, which is kind of interesting. But we haven't really started seeing visual novels in the Western marketplace until, I kind of want to say, until Mass Effect became a thing and people started saying, hey, we can do games with dating elements. But I can't, I guess like the first real visual novel experience that I had of any real significant impact, not just a visual novel in general, but one that had a significant impact in the Western marketplace would be Phoenix Wright. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a very good example. Um, because Phoenix Wright, I think its success was it was a good story, and it had those adventure game trappings. I mean, you could definitely see it, it still was an adventure game in that respect, but it also was that hybrid with the visual novel that could bring in people to a new genre while giving them something that felt comfortable and familiar. Uh, I mean that that's part of why I enjoyed the Sakura Taizan games is because you know it's a 
dating sim, but you also have RPG elements and, you know, there's a lot of dialogue. So you could definitely say it's also got visual novel elements to it. And I, I think, unfortunately, that never came over to the U.S. except for the fifth one. But that's a whole other discussion. But you really saw the adventure game. I'm sorry, not the adventure game, the visual novel subgenre take off in the same way that the hidden object game took off because it kept those classic adventure game trappings when it first came over here, and those hybrids brought people over. Absolutely, and it's with the popularity of Phoenix Wright to variable degrees, you started to see other developers eventually take chances, uh, most notable among them companies like Axis and Exceed, who brought over the Jake Hunter series, Corpse Party, and then later with Nipponichi and Danganronpa, and then you started seeing more and more of these kinds of games come to the PC. And, you know, at this point, Steam has become kind of a joke in that it's become, quote-unquote, infested with weeb shit, where there's visual novels all over it. But honestly, fuck all y'all. We went for a period where there were no visual novels whatsoever available in the marketplace. I would rather have too much choice than not enough. And honestly... With the diversification of the marketplace, I think it's going to be a lot harder for somebody to kill off an entire genre when more likely you're probably just going to end up in a position where companies who release 10 visual novels in a year, looking your way, Sakai Project and Winter Wolves, those companies will eventually end up feeling the sting as they sell less and less and their products do less and less business. While companies that focus in on one or two significant VNs a year are probably going to carry on a, a better reputation for quality. Yeah, um, I think a good example of that would be When They Cry. You know, it's a series that's been popular over in Japan. It was probably the most popular visual novel series for a long time. And, you know, it finally came to Steam, I want to say about a year or two ago. And it sold really well, partly because of the hype, but also partly because people really like it. I think they're overrated but you know it, it's a good example of where quality or name recognition or word of mouth keeps the game selling even in a genre where you could make the joke that 10 or 20 visual novels come out on steam a week and not that far from the truth yeah i was never really a fan of higurashi when they cry just because i fucking hate the art quality oh god that. well and it, it's a single guy that made it back in the what was it late 90s so i i can understand the original games looking like crap by today's standards, but there hasn't ever been an effort to really improve it. No, and it, it's it, it's nice to see that there's like that distinct auteur theory where you you kind of want to own your own property and whatever. That's great. I'm I'm happy for you, but yeah, that's that's never going to be a thing that's going to appeal to me. Unfortunately, I'm glad that people like it, and I'm glad that it's available for those who do. But me personally, I'm never going to be into it. But it's also worth noting for those who are kind of on the outside of the visual novel genre and would want more information, you can look into such concepts as, you know, dating simulators, which, again, are games where you follow X amount of paths and attempt to answer questions and perform proper interactions to date a girl or guy, but we'll get into that in a second. Visual novels themselves, which focus more on the telling of the tale and generally try to minimize the amount of interactions over time, except where it provides a story branch. Uh, kinetic novels, where you just go through the story in its entirety and provide no answers to questions, so that the plot is set in stone, and you are just along for the ride. 
And of course, Otome games, which are basically dating simulators, but for the ladies, where you can interact with and date pretty dudes. Notable examples include games like Fruit of Grisaya, which is basically your standard visual novel with a slight hint of dating simulator-esque elements. Uh, Corpse Party, which is your standard visual novel with lots of violent death. Uh, Stein's Gate, which is kind of an evolved visual novel with some weird mechanics. Uh, Danganronpa, another evolved weird visual novel. Phoenix Wright, etc., so on. So if you have seen any of those games, you're a fan of any of those games, you, you have exposure to the genre in some capacity. And we're also starting to see Western publishers pick up, uh, you know, the visual novel, whereas it used to be, back in the day, primarily a unique Japanese-only thing. Uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of American games not only ape the Japanese art style of those games, but just taking it on their own. Like last month, I picked up, I think for a dollar or two, a visual novel version of The Whisper in Darkness, the H.P. Lovecraft short story. And it lasted about an hour and it was fine for what it was. It was neat to see someone trying to, um, you know, a Westerner doing a Western story with a visual novel. It, it was neat to see that as a change of pace. But it's interesting how even some Western made games are are trying to look and be an Eastern visual novel, like to the point where they're trying to hide, hide who's actually making it. Yeah. And, and it's also worth noting that there are, there are a few Western development groups slash houses slash whatever that have been trying to expand on the ideas of what the visual novel provides while offering decidedly Western approaches to these sorts of things mechanically. So again, you see like a walking simulator. No, no, that's, I feel like that, that goes into a, sec a separate category. I'm talking more about things like Winter Wolves, where mm. they attach, you know, stat management games to the visual novel. Or the Love Conquers All games from, uh, from Christine Love, where you have something like Analog, A Hate Story, or Hate Plus, or uh, Lady Killer in a Bind, where there's still very much that focus on text-based narrative storytelling, but Love tries to mix up the way that the mechanics work, so you'll see different ways in which you can interact with the game that take advantage of basically how you would be able to evolve states of play at this point. Well, and like with uh, the Love Conquers All games, like Analog, A Hate Story, they have DLC for that. Sure, it's costumes, but we're seeing things like that. Yeah, and it's... it's... It's definitely shows like an, an interesting evolution of the idea. Like there's there's definitely a case where we're starting to see Western developers take what exists in the visual novel and tailor it to what the marketplace expects on our side of things. And that's not really a good or a bad thing. It's just an interesting evolution where you're you're taking a marketplace that has specific expectations and you're having developers take games from a completely different market and trade and change them up a bit to accommodate their own interests. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It, it's interesting to see how the genre is evolving. Like, like Hoonipop, for example, you know, it's a dating simulator, but it's also a match three game. And so it, it's not really an adventure game anymore, but it has some of those trappings. Yeah. And it's just we're seeing a lot of hybridization now, which is which is both good and bad, just depends on the quality of the game. But it's the pure adventure game. When you think of like point and click with your mouse, it 
they're out there and if you know the genre they're not that hard to find but for the average gamer it it almost doesn't exist anymore it's worth keeping all of this in mind as we go into how the west chose to handle this sort of thing because you can you can kind of sort of see what the west does with the adventure game genre as they evolve it and and kind of tie that into what we just talked about with hybridization because that's that's definitely how things go from the from the western perspective of how to keep adventure games relevant i think yeah yeah and it just it just depends on the area it, it seems like you have the west you have the east but then you also have europe which tried to keep the classic trappings alive by hook or by crook no matter what so it's very interesting to see like the games that come out of England or Russia compared to the games that come out of the United States or Canada versus what comes out of Japan. Right, and for the most part, Europe keeps everything in check. They keep the core structures as we've come to understand them intact and just try to keep refining them. Yeah, yeah, and it's really now become a focus more, at least over in Europe, it seems to be that the selling point is the really good quality story and then some puzzles where you're combining objects or solving riddles, but not to the point where, like, it's mid-90s crazy. Yeah. And then we go into the Western side of things, and... Oh, boy. All right. So here's the, the first thing to kind of understand. Japan looked at the adventure genre and said... The best thing about this is the ability to tell a complex, complicated story. And they ran with that, and they said, all right, what we want to do is we want to make this a storytelling genre. The European market looked at the adventure games, and they said the best thing about this is the ability to incorporate the, the puzzle solving, like to incorporate puzzle solving mechanics with the narrative and cinematic storytelling, and they just tried to hold fast to what was already an existing genre, but slowly refine it over time. The Western Marketplace looked at adventure games and they said, the thing we like best about this is being able to make a video game that's like a movie. Which is a thing. So what we start to see at this point is Western companies, and I don't want to say that this is exclusively Western companies so much as it is companies with a very westernized design aesthetic because David Cage is a person that exists. And he is decidedly not a part of the Western marketplace in the strictest sense of things exclusively. So when we say Western marketplace, it's a shorthand for people who are aiming their games at the American marketplace, primarily. But these sorts of games took the FMV-heavy aesthetic of the 90s, which in retrospect, most of us didn't really like, and says, yes, this is the best part of adventure games. So... Over time, as things go on, these developers focus on cinematic exposure and narrative-driven experiences to the point of all else. The general marking points of any type of what you could basically call interactive cinema games are heavy focus on aping TV tropes and aping TV framing and TV techniques to aesthetically present a product. So if you see something that is commonly using cinematic language or is commonly using cinematic framing within the confines of its adventure game, that's going to fall more into that category of the inter interactive cinema 
sort of subgenre of adventure gaming. Yeah. And of course that that's where we get episodic gaming from too. Yeah, which I uh, it's it's interesting to note that a lot of these interactive cinema games are often episodic games. Yeah, it's become kind of a trope about it. Like um if it's going to be more of a cinematic game where it's really focusing on the visuals or the graphics, it seems to be, you know, oh, let's go for an episodic. I mean, even what the Final Fantasy remake is going to be an episodic game. So. For better or for worse. Um, but a lot of that goes back, of course, to the Western company that. I want to say gave adventure games its brief comeback, but then also probably plunged it into its second dark age. And that's, of course, Telltale. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's worth noting here that there are a few companies that kind of adapted to this particular structure of how these games operate. Yeah, I mean, even The Last King's Quest did episodic, so it's not like it's, it's a Telltale-only thing. But much like Myst or Zork um, as standard bearers, when you think of episodic gaming, I, I can't imagine a company that comes to one's mind before Telltale. Yeah, and it's, to be fair, episodic gaming in and of itself isn't inherently a bad thing. But you generally tend to find with episodic games that developers will often put together a very strong first act and then will frequently limp to the finish in the final act because they, they didn't pace it as well as they would have had it been a game that was fully realized from the jump. And in a lot of cases, developers will just cut up components in order to try to make something episodic that was not episodic originally. Resident Evil Revelations 2 being a prime example where the first four games in that episodic content all focused individually on specific characters. Whereas the fifth game spends the vast majority of its time focusing in on Barry Burton and like 10 minutes focusing in on Claire. <laughs> so it's, 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 there's a decided imbalance in that final chapter. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is that where episodic gaming started off as a really good idea, especially for games where it makes sense to have them be almost like cartoon episodes. Uh, you know, like Sam and Max or Strong Bad. That is probably Telltale at its best with the episodic because it feels like an episode of a cartoon or it feels like one of the Homestar Runner shorts. But a lot of companies have taken that episodic aspect and it's like, oh, we'll figure out the end once we get paid for the season pass. Yeah, and it's, it's to be fair, Telltale, in a lot of respects, codified what it is that we expect from this genre in a lot of cases. Oh, definitely. And it's not that they don't have some good ideas. They clearly do. And more than a few developers have taken the best possible ideas from those and created experiences that are interesting and moving and enjoyable, if not necessarily all of them. So what you'll get is this case where Telltale, and I would say to a certain extent also Quantic Dream, really cemented and codified what it means to be an interactive cinema game. And then a lot of developers looked at those frameworks from Fahrenheit, Indigo Prophecy, whatever you want to call it, and The Walking Dead, and, and Heavy Rain, and whatever other games you would like to point to in this particular situation, 
And you can clearly see that these games were influential. So you'll see other developers pick these up and put them into games like Dear Esther or Gone Home or uh, Firewatch. And you'll, you'll see these sorts of elements borrowed and put together into these games. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But, like, this whole genre is built around those frameworks. You know, cinematic presentation, specific jump cuts, like, active time events rather than extensive gameplay mechanics. So if, if you want to emulate a thing happening, instead of having, like, this whole combat system, it's just press X not to die. Yeah. And it's just... And I, that does. It makes it feel like you're watching a movie to some degree, but at the same time, it's it feels sometimes. And with heavy rain, this is a good example. Why didn't they just make an animated movie? Yeah, and it's it's you kind of see that like the subgenres that fall off of this are definitely a bit frustrating, or at least the source of some frustration amongst players as well. As walking simulators definitely fall into this category of you know, being part of the interactive cinema side of adventure games. As do, as Mr. Jim Sterling would describe it, <clears throat> first-person horror games on Steam. <laughs> well, and, I mean, a lot of horror games have gone, it, it's gone back to the original roots. Horror games originally started out as a subgenre of the adventure game, and then they became this survival horror thing, and now they've kind of come back to the adventure game genre, but in a couple different hybrid formats. Like you said, the walking simulators, there's a lot of great point and click ones like the last room or, you know, Jonathan Boke's games ranging from dark fall to the lost crown. And it, even hidden object games are oftentimes horror games where you're doing the puzzles just to break up the story. So it's interesting to see how cyclical horror has come, but that might be a conversation for another time. Yeah, it's horror itself is definitely like a subgenre that could easily have its own podcast devoted to it. But it's it's important to understand that like what these evolutions in the genre are and what effects they've had just in a broad sense because it's worth noting that right now and I hate to use the it's the current year argument, but right now we're at a point where the core type of adventure game, as we understand it, has slowly started to make a bit of a comeback, again, with games like Dropsy and City Quest and King's Quest and the Leisure Suit Larry remake, etc., etc., starting to gain some ground, gain some traction amongst the more diehard fans of the genre, while we're also seeing a major explosion of both the visual novel through multiple independent developers releasing games on Steam, and the interactive cinema genre, mostly due to a major glut of releases from Telltale, but also due to, again, a lot of independent developers releasing their games mostly onto Steam. And it's worth noting, for there being as many different types of adventure games on the market right now as there are, it's hard to necessarily be 100% satisfied with how things have turned out. I'd agree with that. I mean, it's nice to have all the different options. Like, for one second, I could be playing, you know, Coma 
or I could move on to House of Caravan, or then I can move on to The Walking Simulator Room 404, which are all indie horror adventure games, but they each do it in a very different way. And so, I mean, the options have never been this prolific, but at the same time, it, it's hard to find a game that makes you go, yeah, that's pretty good. Most of them are like, yeah, it was two bucks and I spent three hours on it. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting that like again, I don't begrudge anybody the thing that they love to play. You know, whatever genre you like, whatever franchise you like, more power to you. But it's just it's it's very interesting to note that we've kind of gotten back into the position where core adventure games, the games that utilize the frameworks that were popular in the eighties and the nineties, have started to attempt to slowly claw their way back into the marketplace and have tried in various methods to attempt to diversify their presentation. Again, Dropsy works by conveying its story through pictograms and mostly tries to present its puzzles in ways that are a bit more logical, if not always as such. While City Quest is the kind of game where the text parser will basically allow you to do any goddamn thing, including, like, you know, like throwing a baby into an incinerator or trying to hump a car or whatever. So, like we're starting to see those diversifications to the point where people are taking the technology that exists and just trying to push it to the limits of what's available. But then if we go and we look at the diversified, like the, the, the evolved versions of these genres in the visual novel and interactive cinema, even if you love the fact that there's these options available, we've clearly gotten back into that mentality of massive overexposure and incestuous relationship development. Yeah. And so it's, where does it go from here? I mean, at some point, some of these indie developers are, you know, going to go to the wayside just because, you know, Steam, there are so many games on there, but there's just not enough money to go around. And a lot of the games aren't very good. Sure, there are companies like Big Fish Games, which puts out or at least publishes a hidden object or casual adventure game every single day, literally new game every day. But they have such a personalized audience and a fanatic or fanatical, you know, grouping on, on, that will buy their games. And so even if one game only sells like a hundred copies, you know, Hey, here comes Mr. Case files, watch it sell a million. And so companies like that are, aren't going to go out of business. It's more, I'm worried about the companies that make really good ones that get lost in the shuffle. Like Layers of Fear is probably my favorite adventure game of the year, but it's primarily a 95% walking simulator. Really good, has really good reviews, but I worry about games like that being lost in the shuffle of, hey, look, I did another visual novel, which is set in a steampunk setting, and you really don't have a choice of who you end up with and you only make three decisions in the entire game, 1999. So it, I, I'm optimistic, but I'm also worried at the same time. Yeah, it, it's, it's also really worth noting that I suspect we're probably going to get into a position where both visual novels and the interactive cinema groups are going to start suffering some losses on both sides of things. I mean, from the visual novel perspective, you have a lot of development houses that are not putting in work so much as they are just drawing and then trying to toss out whatever exists. I mean, again, I don't want to shit on anyone in particular per se, but look at a company like Winged Cloud. 
like they've released 16 at this point visual novels from July of 2014 to October of 2016. That's yes, yeah, 16 novels in a little less than two in a little more than two years. Excuse me. That's all the Sakura games, right? Yes. I mean, not the Sakura Taizan, but like the Sakura Santa and Beach and stuff like and that. And Angels and Dungeon and Shrine Girls and Space and Maid and Nova and Agent and Beach and Swim Club and Clicker and Jesus fucking Christ. And how many of those have you played, though? Me personally? Yeah. Like six or seven. <laughs> so so there's definitely a market, but it's how long can they keep that up? To be fair, other people bought the majority of them for me. I, I think uh, I maybe bought one of them myself. I almost got you Sakura Santa from your wish list back in last December. Please don't do that. <laughs> That's there for streaming fodder. I don't actually want to play that. And it's 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 worth noting that, you know, they're not the only company doing this. Again, like... You know, Sakai Project is translating anything that they can get their hands on and bringing it to the U.S., as well as giving a platform to some Western developers, and good in the sense that you're giving these people opportunities. But, you know, we probably don't need 10 visual novels at a time. Even if the price point is low, there's a point where you're oversaturating your own market. And I feel like... The other major problem is that you have these companies, again, like Sakai Project and Winged Cloud, who are releasing these two-hour-long $10 visual novels, who are then trying to convince you that, you know, the Fruit of Grisaya is worth 40 bucks, And once you've conditioned people to pay $10 for these bite-sized games you're going to have a hard time conditioning them to pay full price for a bigger game again. Yeah, and, and we're seeing that that's happening, especially with the console ones. Like, how many copies of Corpse Party can you really buy? I, I, am I really going to buy a PSP, a 3DS, a PC, you know, and a regular Windows version of Corpse Party? Probably not. And same with, like, probably Fate Xella. Or um, uh, what's the name of the Samurai Atome game that we always get Eileen to review? Uh, Hoshi, no. Hoshigami. No, fuck No, him. Hoshigami, no, God. Hakuushi? No, I can't. Hakuoki, Hakuoki. Hakuoki. But, I mean, how many versions of that game have they just released? And it's the same game, just with, like, a little extra content here or there. Or one time they released an action version of the game with, with visual novel scenes. But it's... The console versions of the visual novels really seem to be squeezing blood from a stone instead of diversifying. Oh yeah, and it's you're you're also frequently seeing cases where developers will come up with one really really good game and a really really good idea, and it makes shitloads of money, and they say, "Well, shit, we gotta make a sequel," and it's we saw that with Corpse Party twice, such that Corpse Party was one of the most amazing experiences I've had with visual novels. And Corpse Party Blood Drive, the third game, was so bad it made me retroactively hate the first game. That's that's not an exaggeration. That's not a joke. I refused to play the Game Boy... Game Boy, fucking... I refused to play the Nintendo DS game, 3DS game, whatever, because I'm so sour on the franchise, I never want to touch it again. And, you know, Danganronpa's in the same boat. You came up with one great game with a great story... And then they, they brought out the 
the anime Danganronpa 3 to wrap up that plot. And that anime is so bad, I retroactively hate the franchise because of it, and I never want to play Danganronpa 3, the game. Well, and, and that's the problem. If a game takes off, we are expected to see constant sequels. You know, it's sequel after sequel after sequel in kind of a, a Madden sort of way. I know back when I left Pokemon, one of the reasons I and a bunch of people left all at the same time was because Nintendo basically wanted to make a Pokemon. We wanted a new Pokemon RPG every year, and we're like, no, because that just distills the quality. Uh, but these publishers or are, are demanding sequels, especially for console games. PC games have it a little easier because oftentimes they're self-published, but... And especially when it's a niche genre that gets a really good popular game. It's it's like they're being forced to make a sequel no matter how bad it is just because they smell the money. Oh, yeah. it's it's I legitimately do not feel like the developers of Corpse Party wanted to be held at gunpoint to make two more games based in that same storyline. I really feel like they wanted to make the Corpse Party 2 that they're actually working on, Dead Patient, rather than stories that exist in that same universe. I don't feel like Steins Gate Zero is a labor of love so much as it is the people who made Steins Gate being pushed into making a sequel because there's money on the table. And I definitely don't feel like the Zero Escape franchise had a good idea beyond 999 because VLR was at best tolerable and I don't know what the fuck y'all are fucking on that like you're you're celebrating um the the last game that came out because that game just makes my fucking penis soft. But again, whatever people can like what they like, it's fine. Well, and and it's true of every genre, so I guess we shouldn't just bash the adventure. Like, how many Mega Dimension Neptunia games are there, or Hyper Dimension Neptunia games? And like the first one was really good, and I gave it a good review, except for the fact you couldn't personally choose to heal or use skills but oh my god look how many of them there are now and it's like we're getting like two or three of them a year sure they're different genres but ease down on it guy oh yeah no definitely and it's it's this is a common issue but i feel like it's worse in a lot of cases in visual novels because you're getting games that nobody ever planned to have a sequel for they were written as self-contained experiences where you now have to try and wring blood out of that stone when you didn't even plan to do it in the first place. Like, I'm pretty sure that Hyperdimension Neptunia was designed in a way such that you could always plan for a sequel. But 999 felt like it was a very self-contained story to the point where, during a Q&A session, like, after the game came out, I submitted a question, you know, do Junpei and Akane ever, you know, come together with one another? And his response was, no, they never meet up again. And then, what do we get? In the next two games, they meet up again. So it's clear that the writer did not have a sequel in mind at the time. He pulled it out of his ass afterward when he realized that there was money on the table or when the company did. And it's it's I feel like that's arguably worse where you're getting these great writers who write one really good story and are being told, okay, do it again. So it's you end up with one great game in The Fruit of Grisaia or 999 or Stein's Gate and a bunch of mediocre sequels. I can't say that definitively about Steins Gate Zero yet, because I haven't played it, but history is not on its side. Yeah. Well, and even even if they take the time to make a sequel, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. Like, Barrow Hill. I loved 
the first Sparrow Hill. It's a fantastic first-person adventure game, one of the best I have played that's been released in the past decade. Uh, you know, this year, we finally got the sequel. They skipped over Bracken Tor, which was the original next game that they were going to put out, and they did The Dark Path for whatever reason. And it, it just wasn't the same. It looks and feels like a 10-year-old game, even though it's brand new, and the story just isn't there. So even when, when a company sometimes waits to put out a sequel, they're still just putting it out for the money or because they're expected to. And it's just, it's a little dis distressing because I don't want to see that happen with a lot of adventure game genres. Like, like I love The Lost Crown. I mean, everyone who I've made played that game seems to at least like it to love it. And so we've, we've got a new one coming out and I'm just, I'm worried it's going to go the same route, even though, you know, Jonathan Bokes makes incredible adventure games. And again, that, that kind of ties into the problems with the interactive cinema genre as well, is that that particular genre is very much just kind of inspiring a lot of Me Too, Me Too, where people are making games without really understanding what makes the original game so interesting. And they're not being helped by the lead voices in those genres because the lead voices in those genres are doing the same fucking thing. It's, you can't look to Telltale for guidance for how to properly be a caretaker of the genre because Telltale has released the exact same fucking framework with different characters and narratives attached to it for like 10 games now. And it, it gets even buggier and even worse to play through with each new game. It's just, it's, it's just amazing that Telltale was this company that brought back Sam and frickin' Max and made the episodic formula perfect for that because it felt like you were watching an episode of the cartoon series that was spawned after, you know, hit the road. It, it just, it felt perfect to have that, that episodic format. And each month a new game came out, you were waiting for it. And same with Strong Bet. It felt like an actual Brothers Chap, uh, you know, Flash cartoon. And now it's, you know, you wait months and then what comes out is barely playable and people are angry over it. And yet they keep buying the... The Telltale games, even though people just seem to hate them more than they love them. Yeah, and I mean, it's also it's also really worth noting here that Telltale kind of dug themselves into a hole almost entirely because of The Walking Dead. Ugh, yeah, otherwise known as Clementine gets everyone killed constantly, yeah. Yeah, I'm not it's a fan of story. I'm not a fan of that franchise at all for a lot of different reasons. I, you know, I, I wrote an extensive review that it, it's just misery tourism. And one of these days, probably with Aaron, I don't know, I'm gonna do a podcast talking about just how utterly uninterested I am in the misery tourism genre as a whole. But to to sum it up in brief, it's Walking Dead is just not a thing for me, and let's just leave it at that. But here's the thing. <laughs> Walking Dead made a shitload of money for Telltale Games. Sure. Yep. All right. The problem is the guys who developed that game left the company when that was done. Yep. They they went on to go make their own games at that point, like their own specific games in that genre. And you know, now you're you're in a position where you are Telltale Games. You have just created one of the most well-regarded, well-received things in gaming. And suddenly you kind of have to follow up on that, but you don't have the people involved who did it. What do you do? 
Yeah, and, and so this goes similar to a conversation that we've had before. It's you can do lots of different things. You can either go, you know what, we've done this. Let's try something new. Let's work on innovation. Or you can go, let's keep the basic trappings like, oh, you know, Persona 2 and Persona 1 is very different from Persona 3 and Persona 4, except for the art style. But they're all good games in their own right. Or you could do the like the Final Fantasy thing where there are some universal threads, but each game is notably different from the other for the story wise or look wise. But Telltale decided, oh, my God, we can't let go of this. If we do, we're going to die. So we're going to do every single game in the exact same way forever. And once people start to realize that this isn't a good game, we're going to get another big name license to get people excited about that. Right, and it's that's the only that that kind of seems like the the idea that they came up with, and I mean to be clear, I don't necessarily feel like Firewatch, which is where the 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 writing and designing leads from The Walking Dead went. Like they 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 left to form Campo Santo to develop, develop Firewatch. I don't feel like Firewatch in and of itself is the thing that I personally wanted out of this genre. But I do feel like it's something different, and I do feel like it's something interesting in the genre. Telltale is not doing that Mm-mm. at all. Because, I mean, it's, again, like, just let's... Now, there are other games that kind of follow this basic concept, you know, the 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 episode, the episodic content, things of that nature. And Telltale has been doing these games for years. The The CSI games came out of them, for example, which is, you know, not nothing. But let's start from The Walking Dead, all right? The Walking Dead begot, you know, multiple other Walking Dead franchises and sub-franchises, but there's also, you know, The Wolf Among Us, Tales from the Borderlands, The Game of Thrones side story, Minecraft story mode, The Batman game, etc. They... In the span of time from The Walking Dead, which initially came out in 2012 to now, that's a four-year time period. Four years. You've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They they have a, a ninth game set to first release in December. Nine games that they've released in that time window in four years. That's insane. Well, and it's also worth noting that you know, at the very tail end of that, because The Walking Dead, you know, Law & Order Legacies came out. So if you move it back by just a month, all of a sudden you've got 10 games in four years. And it's just... And the quality, you see the quality suffering, because look at how many people complain about how buggy the engine is. And they're doing what I call a a ukes, or where they're so concentrating on getting the next game out, they aren't taking the time to fix the engine, and the quality suffering. Sure, but I would actually argue that Ukes, at the very least, is spending a certain amount of time in that development model because they only have to release one SmackDown game a year. Yeah, but I'm saying it's a similar problem, but Telltale, it's exponentially worse because by the time one game comes out, they're already trying to think about the next three. And and so nothing's getting that level of concentration that a single game should. Yeah, because like you just take a look at the first to last releases and how they overlap. Law and Order Legacies, December of 2011 to the end of March 2012. Walking Dead, April of 2012, one month downtime to November of 2012. 
The Wolf Among Us is October of 2013, which is the, the longest downtime period that they have of about 11 months to July of 2014. But then a month later, they start into The Walking Dead Season 2. So you've got two franchises running concurrently, The Wolf Among Us and The Walking Dead, from October and December to July and August, respectively. And then once both of those franchises are over, we immediately jump into Tales from the Borderlands, November, and Game of Thrones, December. So we're now running two different stories in parallel that are both episodic games using the same framework, the same engines, and, you know, the same groups of people. What the fuck? Really? Yeah, and, and how are they updating it for new PC requirements or the new consoles? And it's just, you can see that the engine is just being held together with virtual duct tape and super glue, the video game equivalent of that. It's just, it's falling apart. And we see that with Batman. We see that just, look how badly that game runs at times. And they had to do that emergency patch for the PC version, so it ended up being later in the console version, because they aren't taking the time to update the engine. And regardless of what you think about the story quality of those games, which runs the gambit from, you know, Game of Thrones, terrible, to Tales of the Borderland, really good, both coming out at the same exact time. It's just, the engine is just, you can tell it's falling apart and in a sad, pathetic, you know, like drunk hobo clown on the side of the street, dropping his pants for quarters. Sad. It's, it's how long before they self-destruct, because at this point, it feels like the only thing keeping them alive is, oh, we've got another license. Oh, look, we just got Guardians of the Galaxy. And it's we're seeing, you know a gamer revolt, at least with Batman to some degree, but how long until Telltale either goes, okay, we've milked this engine for as long as we can. Let's do something else. Let's go back to doing like those cute little bone games or Tales from Monkey Island. Or are they just going to keep until they destroy the genre that they created? Yeah. And it's, it's worth asking that question because they have another walking dead game coming out. And, how sick are people getting of The Walking Dead? Like, even people I know that, like, pretty much ate, slept, and breathed The Walking Dead, like Steven, are like, fuck Walking Dead. Yeah, and that's that's as much the television series as anything else. So, like, you know, Telltale can only invest so much into that as a concept. But by the same token, it's... You're, you're kind of in this position where Telltale is also telling a story that... Or a series of stories that maybe aren't going to help them out. Because, you know, you, you, you've got that point where you had two separate stories that followed along the Clementine character and a set of, like, side stories that didn't necessarily resolve into anything. Then you had a game uh, based around um, Michonne, and now you have a new frontier, which I don't even begin to know what the hell that's about. Uh, it's got Clementine in it again. Oh, fucking for shit's sake. I know, right? Really? It's three seasons of Clementine gets everyone killed because she's a stupid asshole. And I'll never understand how people like that character. She's one of the most unlikable characters I've encountered in video gaming. Because she does something stupid, people try to save her, they get eaten by zombies. That is both seasons so far. That's it. Yeah, and it's, I don't, I don't necessarily hate the Clementine character. I just, I think that there are better ways of telling the stories that they're trying to tell than they are because there's a lot of repeated themes. There's a lot of 
man is the real monster man shit that we've already fucking seen in multiple seasons of The Walking Dead, not to mention the Romero franchises, and the choices that you make are 90% of the time are just basically fucking illusions. It's also really interesting to note that, like, in the discussions that they're having about this, they're kind of saying, well, this new game is supposed to address all the possible endings that players may have taken. I'm like, really? So, how are we going to rectify the fact that Kenny may both be alive and dead, dependent upon the choices that we've made? Oh, you're just going to kill him in the first ten minutes. All right, never mind. Oh, I was going to say they're going to kill him off camera. They're going to say, oh, I miss Kenny. Remember how he died? Yeah. And, and that will be there addressing both, because did he die at, at the hut? Did you leave him there? Or did you go off in the wilderness and he just died later? It's going to be one of those side things where it's just like a three-second mention, and they're like, oh, that happened in my game! Yeah, and it's, it's, it's going to be a case where very much we're, we're kind of looking at, I think, their Mass Effect 3 here, where it's, it's players are going to start to be like, these choices are bullshit and they don't really matter. All I'm deciding is, like, the color of my ending death ray or whatever the fuck. And it, it's... I feel like we're, we're going to be in a position for both the interactive cinema genre and the visual novels where they're going to kind of have to fall. Like, there, there's going to have to be a point where the fans, like, just step in and they're like, listen, fuck off. And we, we kind of have to get things back to their roots a little bit. With visual novels, I think that those mostly appeal to a much smaller demographic, pound for pound who was looking for very specific things. And while I think there's going to be some hurt with companies like Sakai Project and whatnot, let's, let's be honest. Sakura, the, the, uh, you know, Winged Cloud is never going to really suffer within the confines of what they do because they're making games that have hentai patches. Yep. They are, they are appealing to, you know, people who want that erotica. And there's a much more consistent market for that kind of a thing, shall we say. People are much less likely to turn on your product so long as you got your boobs and your butt and whatever. That's fine, not judging, just making a statement that they're probably going to be okay. But companies like Sakai Project and whatnot are probably going to feel a bit of a burn sooner or later as you know people get their 10th, their 11th, their 12th visual novel and they're like, huh. You know, this isn't, this, I don't need as many of these as I thought I did. From Telltale's side of things, I think, I think Walking Dead is probably going to be a make or break thing for them with a, a new frontier. I feel like that's going to be the point where the Game of Thrones franchise did not do particularly well. The prior Walking Dead games generally did. And Batman is starting to get some heat on it, especially for the most recent release. I really feel like we're kind of in a position where New Frontier is a make or break for them. And if it sucks, even a little bit, I think that's probably going to be the point where they're going to have to reevaluate their priorities a bit. But will they? And that's the problem. Will they learn and go, hey, it's time to do something new? Or will it be like that last holding on to the gasp like a person still trying to put out VHS tapes today? I feel like Telltale eventually is going to have to learn a lesson. I think at the very least, they'll probably drop the Walking Dead franchise, but they have a Marvel game set to come out at some point, 
as well as another Game of Thrones. And, uh. yeah. I think... I think if Walking Dead and Game of Thrones both do not do as well as they want them to, and both see, like, you know, a significant backlash from the fan base, whether it be just for repetitive content, even if the games work well, or for straight-up, you know, bad design elements if the games do not work well, I think they are going to be in a position where they're going to realize, all right, we've been doing this for 11, 12, 13 years now, and we've been doing this specific iteration of it for four or five, we need to do something else. Yeah. I mean, it. eventually, I, I can understand a company holding on to what worked for them way, way past the sell date, but I'm worried where Telltale is going to go from here. I guess one thing that sticks out most in my mind is even during the, you know, when Walking Dead was at its peak, when, with the PlayStation Plus option, the most requested game that they had to put on the American version of PlayStation Plus was the Sam and Max season. And I remember them doing a big blog post about it, and they're like, oh, we've listened to you. We put the most requested game as a free one this month. And that that strikes me because this was during, you know, the middle of The Walking Dead. It was at its peak. Um, you know, everything that Telltale seemed to do was golden. And what people wanted was a Telltale game that was funny, not not dark, and that used a different engine from the one they've milked to death. So it's, will they go back to what originally worked for them? Will they try something new? Or are they going to hold on to this until the Titanic thing? Yeah, I feel like if nothing else, they at the very least need to just take a year and just update their damn engine to a point where it, it works the way that it's supposed to. Because a lot of the complaints I'm hearing now are complaints that I was hearing from Ash back in 2011 with fucking Jurassic Park, for Christ's sake. That they they have not updated that they've said they've updated that engine, but I think anyone that's looked at the code or even remotely monkeyed with it can say no, no, this, this is a buggy piece of crap. It's like trying to run a website on Cold Fusion in 2016. Yeah, and it's at the end of the day, and, and I feel like we can probably close on this. It's adventure games by and large are probably never going to get back to the peak era that they were at back in the 90s. Which is, again, this is this is a common conversation that we, we've had, right? We, we've talked about this um, not too long ago with Rhythm Games, etc., so on. So this is, this is not a new discussion topic. But it's worth noting that they are right now in a better position than they've been in in a long time, but the people who are caretaking the original adventure games as we understand them are kind of approaching releasing those games with a certain degree of trepidation and giving that the sort of respect that it deserves, the sort of wide berth that it deserves to make sure that they don't repeat the sins of the past, while the people who are coming in with the new diversified, evolved versions of adventure games in visual novels and in interactive cinematic experiences are kind of getting back into that idea of, well, the best thing that we can possibly do because our shit is popular is flood the market with as much of it as we can so we can make as much money as we can. And it's, I feel like those particular subgenres are kind of heading for a crash sooner rather than later. No, I completely agree with that. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see the cinematic and we're going to see the um, 
excuse me, the visual novels and the dating simulators crash a little bit because they've hit their peak and there really isn't anywhere for them to go but down. It's just how far down they'll go. Well, we'll see the hidden object game probably, you know, just keep chugging along like it has been for the past 15, 16 years of selling pretty good um, to a specific audience. And the classic point and click adventure game, it's going to be, yep, decent game, decent game, decent game. One game every year or two that does really well and gets critical um, success and has a decent word of mouth. And then it goes back to decent game, decent game, decent game. It's going to be one of those genres that spikes here and there. Yeah. And I mean, I am kind of hopeful that we can, at the very least, retain the stuff that's quality. I, I'm afraid that there's going to be collateral damage and casualties that, you know, might take out companies that are really legitimate quality producers. But I'm hopeful that for the most part, the people who make the quality products will hold on and be in a position where they can continue to make those quality products in the long term. But right now, it's just kind of a case of there is almost certainly a quote unquote reckoning coming in some capacity or another. The biggest concern is mostly just how much damage it's going to do and what the long-term effect is going to be. But yeah. that is something that is just going to be a matter of time. I agree. And it's just, you know, you want to hope that it's not going to be the companies like, um, you know, Jonathan Bokes and his Black and Rock, the new Lost Crown game, or the Kathy Rain video game that just came out, which is really good. You're going to hope... And it's terrible to say that, that you're going to hope that it's going to be some of these lesser publishers that have either flooded the market and kind of cannibalized it themselves or just the bad games will slowly go away. And it will be similar to like the early 2000s where you wouldn't have a lot of adventure games, but the ones that come out like Dracula, The Last Sanctuary or Siberia or The Longest Journey are are big. They're, they're as good as they are popular. And it's. What's going to go first, the quality or the quantity? Yeah, and it's, at this point, all we can really do is wait and see. But I think we, we've pretty much about gotten where we're going to get as far as this conversation goes. I agree. So, I do want to say once again, thank you very much to Mr. Alex Lucard for joining me to record today. I do appreciate it. Certainly. Happy to be here. And if you liked what you listened to today, uh, make sure to like, subscribe, and comment. Uh, you can find us over at soundcloud.com slash markbwriting, as well as on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and anywhere else that podcasts are hosted. Uh, feel free, if you want to follow along with the process, to follow me on Twitter over at markbwriting, and at Facebook at markbwritinghome. And as you've mentioned before, Alex, you don't really have any public social media accounts to plug in at this point. No, but, you know, if you... Want to go look me up for whatever reason, stocky voyeur-wise? I mean, it doesn't hurt, but um, yeah, most of my stuff is private. Yeah, so you can check out uh, diehardgamefan.com to see the writings that we have done over the various years, as that's that's pretty much about the closest you're going to get as far as that goes. Um, But that should pretty much be about it. So join us next time when our topic will be Why Alone in the Dark is Literally Satan. On behalf of Alex Lucard, this is Mark B. saying, stay safe out there, junkers.